Welcome to Feel More, Buy More, the marketing and advertising podcast from System One that puts its data where its mouth is. Everyone has an opinion on the latest ads, so do we at System One. But we've got the numbers too. Effectiveness test scores fresh off the System One ad ratings database. Every episode, the System One team and our guests talk you through the latest campaigns and the freshest work, and then we reveal their star ratings. They say the best marketers zig when everyone else sags. In a world of short-term thinking, hyper-targeting, micro-influencers and activist brands, British family bakery brand Warburton's are doing some definitely unusual things. They make one huge campaign every couple of years, run it mostly on TV, bring in A-list celebrities and tell gently comic stories around them. It's all designed to appeal to a broader audience as possible. Their latest campaign, which began airing uh, recently, features Robert De Niro muscling into Warburton's bagel business. On the other hand, you have Brewdog. Brewdog and Controversy go together like a summer's day in a pint of cold, crisp lager. Brewdog's latest stunt delivered again. Its first TV ad proclaimed the most honest beer ad ever. Certainly it was one of the most minimal, a static shot of a Brewdog can and the word advert. Crowd pleasers versus disruptors. We'll look at the ads, what they're aiming to do and how well they tested. With me today, I have System One's very own head of marketing, Tom Ewing. Hello. And ex-Brewdog CMO, John Evans. Hello. How are you both doing? I had a, I had a craft beer to get me in the mood yesterday so it's probably worn off by now what was it was it a brew dog it wasn't it wasn't it was some it was some maple syrup stout thing oh i see um very fancy very nice so we're going to start off by taking a look at the warburton's ad and sort of get get everyone's thoughts mr warburton robert de niro's waiting no i'm not jonathan what do you call this bolton bakes best bagel my butt well as far back as i can remember i always wanted to bake i'm not done all we gotta do is sit back and watch the dough roll in. You're looking at the new boss of Bolton. Sounds like a great movie. What movie? How does it end? Not well. So, what were what were our first reactions when when we when we saw that ad? Start with you, John. Uh, I, I absolutely love it. I think it's one of the best ads I've seen in a long time. I think the brilliant thing is is the storytelling. It's just it, it grips you all the way. I mean, that's the, is that the two minute edit we just yeah, that's the long minute. edit. I mean, that's usually I mean usually it's a struggle to get past thirty seconds, but the whole two minutes I'm gripped. It's it is like a mini kind of Hollywood film, which I think is absolutely brilliantly done. They've they've put it together. What actually this this is the second time I've seen it because um, I yeah caught it a, a, a week or so ago but the thing like there were so many details that I didn't catch the first time and I think they've made it like a sort of it's almost like an episode of The Simpsons or Family Guy or one of those shows mm. where they've tried to put a joke or, or a reference into every single frame so there's always yeah. something you can see there's something that justifies them you know paying this much and being this lavish there's a real sort of sense of care which has got to also signal that you're you know taking care of your brand that you're if you want to communicate we love our product. We love what we do. I think that's that's something that really comes across to me with with the Warburton's ads. These are these are people who actually really enjoy marketing. Yeah, they loved making this stuff. Well, yeah. I th- you can see you can see the care that's gone into it as well. I mean that that would have cost a fortune. I mean, I'd love to know the production budget because you've got a genuinely world famous actor in Robert De Niro. You've got you know brilliant production. You've got a great. You've obviously got really good script writers. 
writing this kind of stuff. Incredibly expensive location shoots in Bolton. <laughs> yes, they saved on that. <laughs> I think the, the, another thing that they've done really, the humour is absolutely brilliant. I mean, there's quite a few gags through it, but it, it really makes you smile and makes you feel something. I, think, I know from a kind of system one point of view, yeah. making you feel something is really important. And that's what this ad achieves, I think, very, very well indeed. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I think that one of the reasons that we picked this to, to kick off the podcast series, that it basically, um, Warburton's do everything that we would advise. Obviously, not every brand is going to be able to shell out for Robert De Niro, but any brand can think, how do I like, make every moment in this ad you know, feeling worthy? Um, how, can I, how can I make it kind of excite people get emotions going, make people smile, make people talk about it, make people remember. Um, and, and it's a very human ad. It's a very, you know, very funny. It is quite product-centered as well. That's the thing. There's nothing to be ashamed of about being product-centered. If you want to put your product at the center and you've got a great story to tell around it, that's absolutely fine. Well, I'd tell you the other thing I'd really admire, just if I put my kind of client hat on as well, to do a two-minute ad, I mean, uh, I, we did it uh, when I was at LucasAid with Anthony Joshua. We, we did a, well, it's 90 seconds in the end, but it starts as a two-minute ad. And, um, you know, a media buy, when, you, when you're producing a two-minute ad, is so expensive, it's, re- it's really hard to justify. Um, although it doesn't cost that much more in the editing studio, because usually the cost is editing it down, you know, not yeah. editing it up. But uh, it's quite brave of them to do a full two minutes, I think. I'm not sure, that from a, it'd be interesting to see a media buy-wise, if they actually did buy a two-minute spot, whether that was just online. I think that, looking at our ad ratings, they did at least one two-minute spot. I mean, certainly that's been yeah. the pattern in their, in their previous ones. So they will, they will usually buy, like, a whole ad break in one of the big family shows, you know, X Factor or, or one of those. Um, it's not X Factor anymore, is it? X Factor's kind of gone and been and gone. Britain's Got Talent, was it? Britain's Got Talent. Yeah, yeah that yeah, probably, yeah. yeah. Um, so they will do that. But then I suspect that most of the airings will be um, will be the minute long but of course there's cinema as well where you can probably do yes. that kind of big and that, that's going to work fantastically in cinemas as a cinema spot I mean the only thing I guess that I wonder about with Warburton's is um, you think kind of okay well what's the target and initially you think everyone but then when you look at the the sort of the actors they get and the range that they get it's like Muppets, De Niro, Peter Kay maybe a bit less, but Stallone was in another one. These are all icons to people of a certain age, and I wonder how, like how it goes down to people younger. Say, I mean, James, you are a young person. Yeah, I was going to say you're, you're, <laughs> you're looking at me as you say that. Um, I, I, I think it's interesting that they would spend so much on putting something like this out on TV because um, I think for the younger generation, they're not that Robert Nero specifically, he's not going to appeal to younger people as much as, um, as much as another Hollywood actor would. So you can sort of look at it from that perspective. The Muppets, I think, I, I think it's just, it is their Hollywood strategy. They're, they, they're going at it, spending the big bucks, getting big brand names in, big Hollywood actors in, um, for, for them so what are sort of your thoughts on that Hollywood strategy um, that they've implemented here um, I mean I, if it's if it basically our, our feeling at System 1 is if if whatever strategy you're doing is creating ads that make people feel more you know if you can get an ad that makes gets people feeling stuff and it's like shot on a steady cam in Peckham High Street 
um, <laughs> on a budget of 50 quid, then absolutely brilliant. You know, you, you, you do you. On the other hand, sometimes spending money is the right idea. Going, going for it kind of with that sort of that Hollywood thing. I think it's interesting because you see some brands in the US who do it and they tend to do it. What they tend to do is rather than make a single blockbuster ad, it tends to be like, let's use this same person over the course of a campaign. So Nespresso are a good example of that at the moment with the George Clooney ads. And they're all good ads. I mean, they're all good entertaining um, fun ads. They're sort of a bit variable in terms of the, the, the actual kind of test results we've seen for them. But I think one thing that we did do was we did some research on um, whether hiring an actor like that for an extended campaign, actually what it turns out is that in effectiveness terms, you're better off kind of creating your own character, like getting a character sort of from out of nowhere. Um, to go back to the whole employee thing, um, the British ads, Howard with the Halifax. Mm. I mean, he was a very sort of love it or hate it kind of a, a character, but he was a genuine member of staff, um, and he was sort of elevated into that position and they created a character out of him. And that ultimately will have both saved the money, but also I think will have, you know, you've then got a, a character who, who you own and you have total control over what they're doing. Whereas George Clooney, if George Clooney suddenly appears as like a serial killer in something and kind of everyone is thrilled by his incredibly horrible performance and then the next day they see him being lovable on an espresso ad, maybe there's that the sort of, you know, well, one of the, one of the best examples made at character is the Meerkats, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, yeah. That, that's a brilliant piece yeah. of uh, You're, you're going to hear a lot about the Meerkats on these podcasts. Yes. Because <laughs> they tend to do very well. But yeah, that's great. They, that's, that's an example of how you've created a, a whole family of very sort of, you know, living characters out of whole cloth. You've, you've got a catchphrase to go with it. You've got a set of, you know, and there's now, they can now score quite high um, in tests because they've been around for so long with even the most sort of you know really un quite unpromising material the latest one um, that we tested for them it ended up as a three star ad and, and literally all it is is one of the meerkats is dressed up as a chili yeah. and it's just him sort of going oh hello it is I a meerkat dressed as a chili <laughs> nine seconds and people go oh yeah that makes me happy because they like seeing yeah, the character yeah. they want to see the meerkat so I, I think I think for me with with the question on the Hollywood yeah. celebrity, I think it depends on the authenticity. So if, if the celebrity is the face of the brand and that's all it is, I think that's really inauthentic and it's it's yeah. just, I, I you know people see through that. It's just cynical. They've just paid the person a lot of money. They're the face of the ad and there's no more to it. What works here though is that it, you know the whole story is built around Robert De Niro and Goodfellas, isn't it? So yeah. so that, that that's the whole point. And the, well, apart from the acting being absolutely brilliant, it is the story. So I think in that case it works very well. But in other cases where you go, hi, I'm you know so and so, and I'm the face of this ad, that I think that kind of uh, shameless plugging is is not particularly effective. Definitely. And then yeah, I mean, he looks like he enjoyed doing it is the thing. You get the feeling that it would have been quite fun for De Niro mm. to do that, as well as clearly a very lucrative, you know, high-paying gig <laughs> for him. So it's not just purely going to be... Oh, but I yeah. wonder if we, if we got Jonathan in on this podcast and we said to yeah. him, right, get, name us your top three actors, whether he'd go <laughs> Stallone, De Niro, The Muppets. Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. Um, yeah. I, I, the challenge, back to, your, back to your question on generations, actually, is this could be a reflection of his, his kind of... You mm. know, uh, his interest and I wonder what the kind of well to overuse the phrase millennial but what the younger generation equivalent of that ad would be it'd be quite interesting to to see you know try and make an ad that appeals maybe to a younger audience yeah I do agree so how well did the uh, the Warburton's ad perform Tom 
Right, let's let's look at the results. Drum roll, please. The star rating. Drum roll. Insert drum roll here. <laughs> um, so, for every ad, for those new to System 1 star ratings, we give it a star rating from 1 to 5. Um, it is a measure of effectiveness and a predictor of how much the ad has the creative quality to amplify the spend that you invest in it. So, if you spend a lot of money on a one-star ad, um, you will not actually see terribly much extra return for that, if any. But if you spend a lot of money on a five-star ad, you will get a heck of a lot of bang for your buck. Um, now, Warburton's, the star score they received, it's a four-star ad. 4.7, so very nearly five, but it is a four-star ad. Actually, their Muppets one got a five. That did come out at around Christmas time. Um, but there we are. Still an excellent score. 4.7 is extremely high. Only 1% of ads get five star. So that near miss is absolutely nothing for them to be, to be concerned about. And if you're in a situation where your lowest ever scoring ad is 4.7 stars, you are doing something very, very right. Uh, it also scored off the charts, um, it says here, on Spike, which is our predictor of short-term effectiveness. So if that's the case, we would expect plenty of people to be enjoying a bite of bagel at the moment. So, Tom, can I ask you a quick question here? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, being the System 1 guru and predictor of all things effectiveness-wise, um, I notice Hovis are just about to uh, relaunch or re-edit their famous ad from, uh, I don't know how many years ago it was. It's, but it's the, 1973. It's, uh, yeah, so, you know, that's quite a long time ago. It is a long um, time ago. That is one of the most famous ads of all time. Obviously, huge amounts of nostalgia, regularly voted up, up at the top. Do you think, higher or lower that this ad will do compared Ooh. to the 4.7 Warburtons? Because it's got to be a close-run thing, that, it, I'd have thought. It is a close-run thing. I think that, I think, I think lower, and the reason I think lower is that I think that people will notice that it's not the original one, or will, you know, there'll be just something, remakes are always a little bit, a little bit kind of weird. It's very hard to think of a remake, particularly a very faithful remake, that did... Um, that, that kind of got, got the magic of the original completely. They can still be pretty good. Um, they can still sometimes be better than, you know, previous attempts. Um, I'm, but there is a kind of, there's a magic to the original idea, to an original idea. And I think that's what people are responding to when they look at that Hovis ad. And there's also now this kind of double dose of nostalgia, which is, I guess, what they're trying to kind of um, yeah. tap into, where the original ad was nostalgic for 40 years before it aired and now it's kind of another 40 years since it aired so you're being nostalgic for not only the 30s but for the 70s idea of the 30s it's all it, it's all it's all incredibly um it's very very complicated it's very tangled up i'm sure you can throw brexit in there if you want to play the amateur <laughs> sociologist as well i think we'll be coming back to that one um, in a few well, it just reminds me of one of uh, you know john kieran's famous words of familiarity breeds contentment and that just feels like one of those ideal examples. We're actually producing something familiar and iconic um, can deliver some great results. My, my guess is, there we go, I'm going to put, I'm gonna put, put some skin in the game. Come on, then. 4.4. Mm. You heard it here first, folks. 4.4. We'll see what it actually does. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you want to find out um, the actual score of the Hovis app because we'll be testing it in due course. Now... 
I think we've spoken plenty about the Warburton's ad, and I think it's clear that um, we all, we all enjoyed it. We loved a bit of Robert De Niro, and it also scored well. So let's move on to the next ad we're going to be talking about. We've all seen it, but I'm just going to play the 30-second Brewdog advert now. Thoughts on that, gents? You, you didn't miss much, by the way, if you were uh, <laughs> you know, only hearing that, um, that ad. Because what was, what was happening on the screen, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's, it's the word advert in black letters on a white background and a picture of a can of Punk IPA, which is, is it's their, signature, their signature beer, isn't it? They're certainly the most famous beer. It is, yeah. I, I, I think this is a fascinating one because... I think the question here is, how do you judge this? So yeah. do you judge this as a piece of advertising content, in which case it doesn't have that much appeal? Or do you judge this as a, a piece of PR, uh, a provocative statement, something to cut into the conversation in culture at the moment about the role of advertising or the role of craft beer sort of thing? So Brewdog has always always defied convention and tried to put two fingers up at the mainstream um, because it's on a mission to convert people to craft beer and, and in particular to Brewdog. So it's always been subversive and tried to make a point through the medium as well as the message. And I think that's on that basis, it does it very effectively. What I'd love to know, and I don't have the data, but I'd love to know how much social media traction this ad created because... Um, I can guarantee one of the main reasons for doing this is to get talked about yeah. within popular culture. And it was, it was massively talked about in the, um, in the industry. Um, I actually, it actually does, it, I, I admit that I, it makes me laugh, the ad. Not in a bad way. I think it's funny. Um, I think it's, it's refreshing. I think one of the, like, the little execution things it does quite well is that it isn't a punk track. Um, it's by going for the slightly more absurd and kind of, you know, shall we say lyrically um, yeah. <laughs> rather more obscure genre of, of grindcore or death metal or whatever it is. It basically says, you know, yes, we're doing this with a wink. We're having a bit of a laugh. I think it could have, it could have been much worse if it had used some kind of, you know, corny old punk track and had been sort of all saying, yeah, we're rebels or whatever. Mm. I think it's, 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 it's able to make a joke, which I think is good. And I think it's going to get a bit noticed, a bit talked about, that kind of thing. Whether it gets kind of wider traction. Of course, the other thing about this um, is that it aired for the first time during uh, Game, Game of Thrones. Thrones. Yeah, the one of, I, I yeah. don't think it was the final episode. I think it might have been the, the second last episode. And that obviously, you know, that is an episode, that's a, a series all about, I mean, that's a very metal series. It's a very, you know... Very bombastic. But do you, but do you know what was also genius about that? Was that the, uh, the series aired at 2 a.m. on Monday morning, which means unless you're an absolute diehard fan, you'll be watching it on catch-up. If you're watching Game of Thrones on catch-up, you'll be fast-forwarding the ads. Yes. If you're fast-forwarding the ads, the only ad I promise you'll remember is a 30-second still of a white screen saying advert and Brewdog on it. Because obviously everything else you'd have missed because it'd be live motion. So... Whether or not that was planned, I don't know, but that's a very, you know, kind of interesting consequence of having a, a still ad running on for 30 seconds. So there's a, so there's a, there's a secret cleverness there, um, I think, in it. And, I mean, I think, for me, the, the issue with BrewDog is that 
there comes a point where you have to stop, or you don't have to, but there comes a point where like the logistics of the market mean that you need to stop behaving like a small brand and you have to start behaving more like a big brand. And it's how do you manage that transition? Like BrewDog are now in Tesco's, they're now doing billboard advertising, they're now doing uh, TV advertising, which obviously this was. They're in every supermarket. They are as near to mainstream as... Well, I, th- I think he- herein actually lies probably the crux of the brief that led to the ad, right? Because um, I think, I'm right in saying, or it was at the time of yeah. going to press when I was working on it, that um, only 14% of the UK population drinks craft beer compared to, I think it's above 80% for mainstream lager. So although Brewdog punch so far above their weight in terms of kind of um, awareness and, and love and so on, in fact, on the, the Brand Z uh, top 75 UK brands report last year, Brewdog is the only beer in that in that list. So it beats Stella, it beats Guinness. It's incredible the fame that the brand's generated short space time. System One does not endorse the Brand Z no, report. No, of course, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but obviously very, very flawed methodology and all that. But... Um, but you know, it's, in, it's achieved, and in fact, that's not, you know, it doesn't matter which measure you use, Brewdog yeah. as a brand, yeah, whether yeah, it's yeah. love or passion well, I mean, or salience or whatever, it doesn't matter which measure you use, Brewdog beats every other beer in terms of love and awareness and so on. But that doesn't translate into sales, although it's growing very quickly. If you compare global sales of Brewdog to global sales of AB InBev, it would still be, you know, one thousandth of the size. So you know from a brewdog perspective the job of converting everyone to craft beer has still only just begun and it's probably a bit like um when apple when apple did 1984 so when apple did 1984 apple was a very niche it was um you know it it had a super fan base it was basically people that you know loved the creative industries wanted mac for its superior processing power and the aesthetic of the machine all that sort of thing um and then they created the ad basically to make a big statement of well what you've been you know using all these years a, a pc and here's apple basically kind of uh, you know bulldozing its way into your consciousness sort of thing and that, that's basically the um the idea behind this is to certainly make a big statement and interrupt your consciousness and try and force you to reevaluate but, your but that you know section. apple apple's 84 of course it's got it's got a story it's got brilliant direction from ridley scott who also did the hovis it's got all this kind of other stuff going on and and this is sort of this is the, the, the thing, I think, that like in terms of being talked about, you know, clearly that's the, the thing that they want to be measuring here um, for, for BrewDog. But is, is there something, is it like just still a bit too nihilist? I, I, do you know what? I, I 100% agree. I was thinking about this. I was, I was thinking to myself, what would, I, what would I do? I mean, I had a hand in writing the brief that yeah, yeah. then produces work, but I didn't, I, this wasn't my, wasn't my work, so I can't take any credit or or the opposite for this anyway but I was thinking well what would I have done and actually um, I don't think you have to I think you can make a bold political statement and be very edgy and also have emotional appeal Uh, exactly like 1984 1984 worked as a statement but it also worked as a brilliant bit of storytelling that made you feel something and led to it being voted in some in some um, rankings the best out of all time so I think the challenge for Brewdog is how do you do both you don't have to subvert the advertising medium at the same time you know you, you can you can work with it but but also maintain your kind of punk it, edge it, and it risks it risks like kind of concentrating the the you know concentrating on being subversive and subverting the medium it risks sort of looking inwards and backwards a yeah bit, rather than forwards and outwards and how do you how do you still be well the, pro- the problem is actually I, I think the issue is what do you do next yeah exactly because ha- exactly. having having kind of put two fingers up at the medium 
do you use the medium again? In which case, if you do do it, how do you do it? Because you've already subverted it once kind of thing. So I think that's, whereas I think with the Apple idea, they, you know, they, they, they created a, a, or were showing a movement, which is a rebellion against, you know, mainstream, in this case, PC. And then that could be done a, a thousand times in different ways. Actually, go, go, almost going back to our Warburton's conversation, I think the angle that I think Brewdog could consider is actually using James and Martin because the the brand is so much. James, them. sorry for the clarity for the thing. James and Martin are the founders. Of yes, Brewdog. sorry, yes. Yeah, yeah. so, so James and Martin um, set Brewdog up just just over eleven years ago. Yeah. Um, and so much of the success is is actually them personally, and and I mean James is prolific on you know Twitter and social media in general. You, you, you'll see him comment on a lot of things, written a book and all sorts. But so I, I think, uh, and they are so passionate about what they're doing and have been consistently so. And I think they're so part of the story that actually it wouldn't be beyond the realms to have an amazing film done in the right kind of way that has them telling their story personally. Because I think people relate to the real, the real stories of entrepreneurs. And you know, being entrepreneurial is, is, is so in, isn't it, at the moment? And young people aspire to that actually hearing from the founders and another phrase as well that um uh, james coins which i really like is radical transparency and he believes in a world of corporate bullshit basically where everything's about perception that brudel wants to make everything transparent so the business was built by its drinkers investing in it anyone can download the recipe for punk and brew it at home and this kind of thing so they, they've created quite a radical open business so it would make sense to have like a you know 30 seconds or a 60 minute yeah, sort of 60 second kind of, you know, James and Martin talking about the passion and what, you know, what led them to create. I, I, I agree with that. And I, I'd like to see something like that because there are a lot of companies now who are adopting that radical transparency approach, the approach that we're very open about everything. We want to appeal to millennials, to Gen Z, who appreciate transparency a lot more. And if BrewDog are looking to appeal to that kind of audience, then um, that sort of advertising would be really powerful and have cut through. I would think. That is so, Tom. I oh, it's results time. Scores on the doors. Well, the scores on the doors. I, we've been we've been kind of tiptoeing around it, but um, we asked, "How did the Brewdog ad make you feel?" And perhaps it was the wrong question in this one case, but it came out as a one star. So, as an ad, as an ad standing on its own, no people were like, no, not bothered. Don't uh, understand as, it. as a as something get to get it. us talking. Something to get us talking. It's worked very Definitely well. Definitely five star. It's done. It's done a good job. <laughs> um, and also, actually, moderate spike. So decent spike. Um, so it will have sold a few cans of beer, and exceptional fluency, which I think speaks back to yeah. what you were saying. Fluency is our our kind of score of brand recognizability. How how quickly and how easily you know it's it's for that brand and you recognize and. Actually, that's an area where it's um, where it's level pegging with Warburton's. You cannot watch those ads and come away not knowing who they're for. They have absolutely the stamp, the kind of cultural DNA of those brands all over them. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, definitely congratulations to both of them, even if it is a bit uh, God Save the Queen versus Dancing Queen. Yeah. <laughs> both great songs. Yeah, so... Given the performance of both of these ads, obviously they would have generated a huge amount of PR and a, a large conversation across the board. So, John, do you think it matters that um, an ad 
doesn't perform well emotionally or through a rating if it's generated as much PR as um, as both of these have? I think the honest answer to that is yes and no. So does it matter? Well, clearly it does matter because I think what um, the system one uh, approach demonstrates so well is that if you want to grow market share in the long run, then you need to connect with people emotionally. You need to make them feel something. And if you make them feel something, they're more likely to buy and you're more likely to gain share of your category in the long run, right? So there's my plug for system one. Um, but, but that's the case, right? So of course it matters, right? It does matter. But there's different reasons for doing advertising. I think if, um, if your objective is to make a big statement and to be talked about and be noticed, and actually pretty much everything BrewDog has ever done is designed to interrupt and, and to force re-evaluation of how people view mainstream beer and to get them to think about craft beer so as a vehicle to do that yes it has worked so i think the honest answer is yes and no um you know in an ideal world i think the ambition should be do both make people feel something and also make a big bold statement and challenge the status quo two hugely talked about ads completely opposite in their approach to advertising uh, with results at a complete opposite end of the scale do you think the Warburton's ad really does beat Brewdog's? I mean, yeah. I think I think that you know. I think that the Brewdog ad is likely to win more prizes. I think that the Warburton's ad is likely to sell more bagels. What I do think, though, is that the Brewdog ad is a step on a journey in a way that the Warburton's ad—they've already got there. They know what they're doing. They're at that kind of destination, and they're just going to keep on doing that. And as long as they keep on hiring the right talent and coming up with good ideas and making them as full of heart as that, they'll continue to, mm. to succeed. John? It would be, it'd be, it'd be great to see, back to the previous point, actually how much social media conversation yeah. has been generated around. But I, I'd love to have a little poll that goes, I'm, I'm guessing, but, but, but BrewDog is dynamite in PR sense. It, anything BrewDog does, you know, whether it offers paternity leave for people that have just you know, got a new puppy in their home and they get two weeks off to help settle the puppy into, you know, so something like that, that makes kind of that makes CNN or something, you know. So it, it's Brewdog is dynamite from a PR point of view, and I think this app would have been designed to create a conversation and be talked about. So I'd love to know that to, to see how you know conversations around Warburtons versus conversation around Brewdog. I'm guessing if I put my money where my mouth is, I'll be betting on Brewdog to have the column inches and the social media engagements off the back of it. But you know, I'd love to know. Yeah, and there's definitely some common ground between the two. You've got um that they certainly want to make advertising that you talk about um what are your thoughts in general about how this can be done successfully outside of these two brands i i think it's risk versus return honestly because i think the uh the the, the brew dog approach is the high risk one which may pay off big time especially if a lot of people get involved in conversation and it builds the cult status of brew dog basically which is consistent with what they've always done um, I think the Warburton's thing is is much lower risk, and I think what what you know to to you know to plug System One again, what System One have demonstrated is what are the ingredients that makes an ad successful, and it is so much it's much more easy now to work out what is going to make an ad successful and use the System One approach to predict whether or not it's going to work. So something like War, the Warburton's ad, you can now test all the ideas you know, through the process from you know, the script at the beginning through to the final execution. And, and you can test it very quickly and easily so that actually you take the risk out of it. So you only invest in advertising you know is gonna deliver a four or five star result. I and mean, that's what I used to do as a, as a CMO in my past life is, well, in, in my case, I set a 
three-star threshold. But they said, unless it's a three-star ad, which will guarantee to drive a percent or more in my market share, we're not going to invest the money. It's just not a sensible use of use the investment. So I think that's the beauty of the System 1 approach is it can really take the risk away. It, it probably won't help you with the BrewDog approach because that's always going to be about high-risk, stunt, and, uh, and being talked about. But it will certainly help you in the Warburtons I mean, the, example. I think the thing that I'd say is that it's... It does that. I would completely agree that the system one approach takes the risk away or takes some of the risk away, and it can help you identify which of those, you know, which ads are, are going to move people and be talked about, um, and which ads are going to move people and and not kind of like have that much dynamism. That's one of the reasons why we have we have star, which is about the kind of like pure emotion and the longer term, but also we have spike, which is about the kind of okay, does it get you going? Does it do that? I think that it enables you to move the risk. Like Warburton's approach in the modern advertising environment, Warburton's approach is actually pretty risky. They're putting all their money on a big bet every year or so. It's very hard to think of other brands that are doing that. And um, and I think the, the, the great thing about being BrewDog is that, or a brand like BrewDog, is that you make your risky play. If it works, fantastic. If it doesn't work, you make another risky play a bit down the line. You know, but the interesting thing, the interesting thing with BrewDog as well, just, sorry, just butt in, yeah. is the production cost of that will be virtually nothing. Yeah, from, so yeah it'll all it be didn't, it, The media value would have been quite high because the media buying Game of Thrones and Britain's Got Talent would have been high, but the production costs low. The other thing is, in my short time at BrewDog, what I noticed is there's, there's so much love for the brand, but also acceptance that BrewDog do push the boundaries that actually, I, you know, BrewDog have got as much wrong as they've got right. If you, if you go back over the last 10 years, there's a lot of stunts that have gone wrong, but actually the fan base have got so much love for the brand that they'll forgive them. I mean, obviously, it's still, they still draw a lot of criticism as well, but it's a kind of brand that you kind of accept will take a risk and will sometimes fail, which I think other brands would never get away with half the stuff that I they, think BrewDog would the do. It's, they've got yeah. themselves into that position, and it's, you know, they've bought themselves permission by you know, to do that. I think both these brands are brands that have now given themselves permission to do something that other brands would be scared of doing. Yeah, whether whether yeah. it's at the high end or whether it's at the kind of like guerrilla stunt end of the smaller brand. Um, and there is a lot to be learned from that. But, you know, you have to start that journey towards getting that permission somewhere, whether you, whether you want to go edgy, whether you want to go, um, you know, try to make these big big blockbuster emotional ads for most of the people that we work with at system one i would say that being more warburton's rather than being more brewdog is probably the better option you have to have something pretty special to get away with the stuff that BrewDog do. gets away yeah. with. and kudos to them i mean that's yeah. that's brewdog have created permission to do some very bold things that the majority of brands simply couldn't do Definitely. So there we have it. Warburton's on one hand um, spent a lot of money on their Hollywood strategy, getting Robert De, De Niro in, scoring 4.7. Brewdog, on the other hand, a completely different approach. Definitely got a lot of people speaking about it, but just the 1.2 score. Thank you to John and Tom for coming on this episode on the podcast. It's been really insightful, especially to get your thoughts on that Brewdog ad, John. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So that was a really insightful chat about the two ads. Now, another thing we want to do in this podcast is introduce you to a few different people from around System 1 and some of the amazing work that they're doing. In this episode, we've got Zinyu, who works in our Singapore office. 
who's going to talk you through some work we've done for some beer brands in Singapore. Over to you, Zinyu. Sure. Hi, James. Um, I'm Zinyu. So I'm a senior research associate at System One. I'm based in the Singapore office. So we wanted to study um, the beer brands in Singapore, uh, specifically looking at distinctive assets. So why this focus on distinctive asset is that we know um, any great brand, they are distinctive through the use of consistent and recognizable assets. So those can be um, things such as colors or logos. And we want to understand um, among the various beer brands in Singapore, what assets do they own? So um, again, the emphasis on distinctive assets is because they are important for profitable brand growth. Because um, what we know from behavioral sciences, um, representative heuristic is that if you want to recognize a brand quickly, it must be a good choice. So they are the, your toolkit to build market share and the most distinctive brands, they can command a higher price premium. So this case study will show us the various um, beer brands, how the various beer brands in Singapore perform in terms of their fluencies and they are a starter guide to understand how they can use these distinctive assets as toolkits to build their brands. Brilliant. So tell, tell me a little bit more about the brands that you tested and the results of the study. Sure. Uh, we tested 10 brands in Singapore. So those are Asahi, Carlsberg, Cronola, Heineken, um, Tiger, Hogarden, the major, major beer brands in Singapore. Okay, um, so to give an overview, starting with the colors, um, we see that um, there's a very strong presence of the green ownership of the green associate green color association. We see that Heineken and Casper they own both the dark and light green in Singapore. In terms of blue and yellow goals those are strongly associated with Tiger. So the rest of the other beer brands like Corona, Kirin, um, Hogarden, they show much less association and ownership of these colors. So we could say that um, in terms of colors, Tiger, Heineken, and Cosworth, those are the major players. In terms of um, logos, we see that most logos, they are working as good assets for a brand to be recognized. Um, Carlsberg enjoys the highest logo recognition in Singapore, followed by Kirin, Asahi, and Heineken. So each is recognized by at least um, four in five people. So the other brands not mentioned, they are less easily recognized. And in terms of brand signifiers in Singapore, um, Tiger earns the highest recognition. So others fall behind. Um, for example, Heineken. The rate style accounts for only 45% recognition. So overall, we see that there's um, things that various brands can be building up on in order to improve their fluencies and distinctiveness. Thank you very much, Zinyu, for taking our time to talk us through that. As always, you can find all of our content at systemonegroup.com. Follow us on social media at System One Research. All of the links and references from this episode will be in the show notes, which also includes a free trial to our ad ratings product. And don't forget, we're going to be in Cannes from the 17th to the 21st of June on the LBB Beach for the Cannes Lion Festival. 
If you want to join us on the beach, let us know and we will put you on the guest list.